Hello everyone and welcome to Seminary for the Rest of Us. This is episode two, which is the first part of a three-part mini-series spanning the conversation I had with Dirk Vonderhorst regarding his book, Jonathan's Loves, David's Laments. Dirk is an instructor of religious studies at Mount St. Mary's University, where he primarily teaches ethics, including courses on social justice and sexual diversity. He has a long-standing interest in the intersection of theology, music, and sexual politics. He earned a Master of Theological Studies in Old Testament Interpretation from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary, a Master of Arts in Critical and Comparative Studies in Music from the University of Virginia, and a PhD in Theology, Ethics, and Culture from Claremont Graduate University. In addition to authoring Jonathan's Loves, David's Laments, he is co-editor of Voices of Feminist Liberation, Writings and Celebration of Rosemary Rafford Ruther, and Contemporary Theological Perspectives on Sexuality. Other publications include contributions to Progressive Rock Reconsidered and the Oxford Handbook of Music and Queerness. In this episode, we get into a little of the book's background, which is also Dirk's background, and we start to get into the question of what is relational theology. I also discover that this is my second subsequent conversation with a Quaker, my first being episode one with Ashley M. Wilcox, and you can give that a listen. The conversation with Dirk covers a lot of ground in its entirety, uh, which was why we didn't have time to get into a lot of definitions. So I wanted to touch base on some names and terms that might be unfamiliar to some. I mentioned the term hermeneutics right off the bat, and that is just a fancy word for the art and science of interpretation in this context being scriptural interpretation. And the term, the, excuse me, the term demythologize also comes up and in its classical sense is a way of reading the scriptures that removes a mythical and cosmological and you can think things like the supernatural elements, things that uh, contemporaries of scripture might have taken for granted as part of their worldview that we in a different context don't recognize anymore. Carter Hayward is a relational theologian with whom Dirk dialogues extensively throughout his work. So you'll hear her name there a lot. Death of God theology grapples with Nietzsche's famous proclamation that God is dead. Paul Tillich was a 20th century Lutheran theologian and existentialist philosopher, also influenced by Nietzsche, and he is famous for saying that God is the ground of being, as well as faith is the state of being ultimately concerned. Martin Buber, you may remember from Psychology 101, where I, thou, and it subject object relationships are discussed. And last but not least, Rosemary Radford Ruther, whom we just mentioned, 
is a feminist theologian known for works such as Sexism and God Talk. So with that, I give you the first part of my conversation with Dirk Vonderhorst. Hi, Dirk. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sabrina. Nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. And um, thank you so much for agreeing to come on here. Um, uh, we're going to talk about one of the books that you've written. Um, and I believe I'm recalling the publication date correctly. It was like three years ago. Yeah. Um, the book it, yeah. Okay. Uh, the book is titled Jonathan's Loves. David's Lament, and the subtitle is Gay Theology, Musical Desires, and Historical Difference. Um, And I'm going to try to summarize the book uh, here real quick, um, and then feel free to chime in whenever you'd like. So um, I tried to summarize it like this. It is a book that discusses the Hebrew Bible texts that may hint at Jonathan and David's relationship um, as being more than a friendship. It discusses uh, gay slash queer theology that drives certain interpretations and vice versa. And finally, how music speaks to the queer experience, particularly in relating to Jonathan and David. Um, In the first part of the book, you spend some time discussing queer hermeneutics and theology as it applies to those texts about David and Jonathan. And in the second part of the book, you discuss your experience with music, um, a few other queer experiences with music, and how listening to some pieces uh, that interpret biblical texts can bring healing that wrestling with scriptures cannot. Do you want to add anything or take away anything? Yeah, no, I don't want to take away anything. The the one thing I think that that ties it all together is this idea of relational theology um, that I get from Carter Hayward, who is a theologian uh, who was one of the first women to be ordained as an Episcopal priest, and she came out as a uh, lesbian uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and she really has this idea of God as our power in mutual relation. And so this idea of of what kind of relationships are being formed um, and what relationships are constructive and what relationships are destructive are is is really the glue that holds it together because I'm not just saying like, oh, Jonathan and David were gay, and therefore we can begin the present. but there's there's a real network of different kinds of interpretive activity that we're we lose when people die, right? There's something when somebody dies that goes away, but they leave something in the world behind and the ways we create relationships with the our forebears right is part of that ongoing process of making god more concrete in the world um so it's it's not just it's not just there was a model in the past and there's an application in the present but there's really an ongoing negotiation and an ongoing activity of reclaiming these um various relationships in the in the bible and and the whole field of like, well, it's not just people now and 3,000 years ago who are doing this, right? There's a whole bunch of people in between who in some ways are very, very different from us. And in some ways we can see like, oh, wait a second. Um, 
it's only when we recognize that something is different, right, that we realize that there's something to relate to. So it's not just this sense of like, oh, David and Jonathan are this wonderful mirror uh, for gay people to just feel affirmed. There's a sense of like, what that actually looks like can can be very, very, very different from context to context. So one, for example, one uh, book that came out um, around the time of my book is a book um, uh, called Biblical Women's Voices in Early Modern England. And the author of that book really shows that people in early modern England often portrayed King David as a woman, right? So this whole idea hmm. of like, oh, this is a great, uh, you know, or in very, very feminine terms. So uh, hmm. in the context of the early late 16th, early 17th century, uh, if we're talking about David and Jonathan, that might not even be that queer of a relationship, right? Because of the way they're thinking about David um, right. is just not terribly masculine, right? So, so those things shift around a lot. And so when we think about the various ways that, Relations, right? With we, we don't exist in isolation. We exist with with relations all around. Some of them work. Some of them don't work so well. Um, and so it's it's that field of relations that I'm I'm seeing how things come together and then come in tied and how various relationships get reestablished. Right. And I want to come back to um, relational theology here in a bit. Sure. Um, and thank you for that uh, kind of like segue into into there. Um, but at first, I'm really curious, how, how did you come to write this book in the first place? Yeah, so um, uh, I, when I was a kid, I was always very, very immersed in classical music. It was something I was really drawn to um, from a very, very early age. And then, you know, I started playing violin and I was in a boys choir and then I went to college to uh, do viola. Um, and in college, I mean, I... My mother was very politically active, but in college, I really got involved in activism. Um, and I started to feel a real um, break between my musical side and my political side. And um, I, I really struggled a lot with like, well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in this room practicing scales and making sure they sound good, but what does that actually have to do with the civil war in El Salvador that our tax dollars are funding, right? <laughs> um, so, so that was, you know, that was that was a real split, and I, I felt very, very isolated and very, very alienated in the music world because my my sense of responsibility was just going in a different response direction than you know I I would find in the orchestra. So, um, my college years were really uh, kind of a struggle to figure out a way to maintain that connection to music. Uh, in the midst of really developing in a deep way some different values. And so um, the the book that I came across in college that that really helped me put it together um, was a book called Feminine Endings, Music, Gender, and Sexuality, which was published in 91. Um, and I probably found it in like 92. Um, and this is this was a book that that kind of looked at masculine bias, not just in you know like musical text, but actually kind of looked at the patterns of the way musical conventions work and kind of interrogated those in, in a really profound way. And that was that was that was really the book that made me say, okay, there there's there's a bridge here that I can have between the political and the musical um, that that works for me. And so at that point in college, I um, wrote 
two, uh, like one as an independent study and one for a class, two, two, two very large papers that are, you know, like large by undergrad, say, so 30 or 40 pages. Um, uh, one which dealt with uh, the musical treatment of the Job story by a composer named Ralph Von Williams. And when I started looking at that uh, piece of music, I just thought, okay, this is going to be an interesting treatment of the book of Job. And then as I was thinking about McClary, there's kind of a point in that uh, treatment where I'm like, oh, wait, there's actually something intensely homoerotic uh, in the way that this this um, composer is portraying the relationship between Job and the final young man, uh, Elihu, who comes to berate him. Um, so hmm. that sort of ended up being the focus of that particular um, paper. And then uh, the other paper I wrote was on the Jephthah story and comparing um, how a Baroque composer named Elizabeth Claude Jacquet de la Guerre, who was a French composer at the end of the 17th century, early 18th century. Um, many of her works were destroyed during the French Revolution, but some of them survive. Um, so she has a, a cantata based on the Jephthah story, and um, Handel has an oratorio based on the Jephthah story. So I used feminist critique of the Jephthah story to kind of look at how a, a woman composer and a male composer were um, treating this story. And so that th that really became the, the basis for the kind of uh, research and thinking I'm interested in doing. So when I went to seminary, my master's thesis dealt with um, the story of Elijah from the Book of Kings and Mendelssohn's treatment of that. And I was trying to uh, figure out a way to think about questions of interreligious violence, both in the Elijah story and in 19th century Germany and, and how those two things uh, intersect. And then in seminary, uh, you know, as I was finishing up my um, master's thesis, right, there was one day in the shower that I was just like, oh, right, the next project is David and Jonathan, right, there's got to be music about them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as, as a gay person who, you know, had, you know, come out many, many years before, it's like, okay, this is the natural progression. Um, so at that point, I felt like I needed a little bit more solid grounding in music theory. So I went and got a second master's in music, uh, critical critical and comparative studies in music, uh, which is uh, another way of saying music history and uh, uh, at the University of Virginia. Um, and out of that, uh, that was a little bit of a detour because I kind of stopped thinking about David and Jonathan when I was there. I was really thinking mostly yeah. about 17th century music. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so the projects I was there, that was kind of a hiatus from David and Jonathan, and I didn't need to do it that way, but somehow I ended up getting uh, maybe a little distracted from David and Jonathan at that point. And then I went on and did my PhD, uh, and the dissertation is the basis of the book we're discussing. So that's kind of the background gotcha. to, okay. to that, how that came about. Gotcha. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so... This is this next question is mainly due to my own curiosity. So when people talk about David and Jonathan, I feel like we naturally say David and Jonathan, David and Jonathan, not like Jonathan and David. Mm -hmm. So was there any was there any significance to the way that you titled the book? Yeah, and one of the things that I I did in the book, right, is I I made clear that I would I would phrase it Jonathan and David when I was talking about Jonathan David primarily as a queer 
uh, couple, right, in that sense, because there's there's a way that 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 reading, right, spills over the boundaries of the Bible. And then if I was talking strictly about kind of the shape of the Bible and and really wanted to focus on the canonical context, then I'd switch it back to David and Jonathan, because David is, of course, one of the most important characters uh, in the Bible, right? Uh, and Jonathan is yeah. not such an important right yes so so by by playing with that how how you can move that relationship around right and i think this is another sort of piece of that relational theology is that in a relationship things move around right and and so yes. you know you can have um you you know you can have dominance for a while and then submission for a while or equality for a while and and those things can be negotiated that can change over the course of a day right when you're in a relationship so yes. that so that sense <laughs> of like being able to move things around in a relationship um, you know, I think I think that 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 kind of moving back and forth between those two ways of phrasing that um, kind of just shows that relation focusing on relationship shows that things are in movement and shows that things are open and shows that we don't actually know what's going to happen next. And our sense of like certainty should be the basis of our theology doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because when you're your relationship, there's always that sense of like you don't know what's going to happen next because there's this other person or this other um, being that, you know, is going to do something that's going to surprise you. Um, so the way I played with those those terms was really to kind of show that there's actually how you frame the story uh, determines the meaning, right? And it's okay yes. uh, to frame it in a variety of ways. So I don't know if that uh, answered your question adequately. Uh I think that does, um, okay. and I like that. I like that you titled it that way because it like forces me to stop and think. Oh, it's not David and Jonathan. It's Jonathan and David, um, and, yeah, and it kind of gives you more... pause. Oh, I'm sorry. I, uh, it's okay. Talk... <laughs> uh, the other piece about that, right, is uh, if you just kind of follow the biblical text, it always says Jonathan loved David, Jonathan loved David, and David at one point says your love for me was great, but it never, ever, ever, ever says in the text David loved Jonathan, and that's, that's really true. consistent with with David's characterization is everybody, including God, loves David. Like he was just so charismatic or so handsome or so ruddy is the word that, that the Bible seems to use. Yeah. Um, and so, so the sense of this, like this person who has this, you know, really electrifying, attractive uh, presence, right? But um, the only person who we know, who, who the Bible describes as loving David, is is Michal, uh, Saul's daughter, whom he marries. Um, yes. And so that's one exception. Um, but it's interesting that after they get married, she that's not that's not referenced again. Um, and I suppose I, I guess I, I could um, talk about this now. Um, the interesting thing about, about um, that designation of there, there's a tension, I think, between um, studies that uh, a scholar named Ellen Van Wold has has put forth um, that where she says when she observes the way the word love is used in biblical narratives it generally means that there's a unidirectional action that's actually establishing some kind of dominance. So that when I say, I love you, I'm kind of making a claim on, you know, you being my subordinate. And there's, and she she shows a lot of ways this works and she, she traces this um, back to the 
to Michal, right, where when Michal loves David, she actually is in quote unquote class terms, his superior, right? She's right. the one who yeah. um, is the daughter of the king and he's a some, you know, nobody shepherd. And so when she loves him, you know, she's kind of establishing her dominance. Um, but this, this really intention, I, I think that analysis needs to be uh, thought through maybe a little bit more thoroughly because that's kind of intention with everybody loving David and him being, I mean, maybe that's part of him overcoming his lowly status, right, is to kind of emerge from that, like, yeah, everybody's trying to put me in my place, but actually I'm I'm the king. Um, <laughs> but Jonathan does really weird things because on the one hand it says he loves him, which if we're taking that analysis of how love worked in those stories, right, then Jonathan's saying, I have a claim on you, right? But then a lot of the stuff Jonathan is doing seems to be saying, like, no, I'm actually submitting to you. Um, so there's there's two things about that that point about love, right? One is, uh, again, when we think about the word love, right, we have certain associations with it that might not hold in other contexts, right? So that that process of, like, really figuring out how weird the Bible is um, <laughs> as a, something from a different place that, you know, if we just kind of say like, oh, okay, we recognize this word and then we start to just make our own associations, um, you know, that's, that's fine as, you know, part of preaching or something. But, um, you know, if we want to get a richer texture or really establish a relationship with a text from the past as a text in the past, you kind of have to bump into some of those weirdnesses, right? Um, yes. And so, so that's that's one piece of that kind of sense of um, bumping into um, that sort of cool question of love. As you know, even when it says they, Jonathan loved David, there's there's it might mean something completely different than anybody in the contemporary debate is. That's true. Yeah. Right. So, um, so yeah. So there was another piece I was thinking of, but I, I seem to have lost that. So maybe it'll come well, back. Yeah, maybe it'll come back uh, sometime during this conversation. Um, I want to circle back to a relational theology. Uh, you mentioned kind of like a network of relationships, but I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more, like uh, what is relational theology? Because um, you also mentioned in the book very briefly, mm -hmm. in contrast to relational theology, uh, liberal theology, oh. and then also mm -hmm. liberation theology. So um, I was wondering if you could explain relational theology a little bit more and maybe a little bit why you chose to go that route. Sure, sure. Um, so liberal theology, right, is a way of thinking about theology that's really an answer to the Enlightenment and is trying to uh, bring reason into a very deep conversation with the tradition, right, and, and to demythologize yes. Uh, the tradition, right? So that's that's our liberal theology strand. And then we have our liberation theology strand, which comes um, out of Latin America and other places, right? That's really just kind of this confrontation with, um, uh, you know, ca you know, transnational capitalism and, and struggles for, uh, you know, equality in the world um, and end to political repression. Okay, so relations, so, so Carter Hayward comes out of both of these traditions, right? She, she's dial she's she's in in deep dialogue with both the liberal tradition and the liberationist tradition. Um, and 
so what she does, right, is she she I think builds on Boober. Um, and she was very interested in death of God theology when she got started. I think she maybe was less. Uh, you you see that influence less as as her theology progresses, but her early interest was was definitely uh, you know, she was reading Altusser and and those people. Um, but what 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 she does right is she she kind of takes the the insistence on justice from liberation theology very very seriously and is going to start to use that to critique doctrines in the way that liberation theology start to unpack like well how does this doctrine actually work right so she's going to be really involved in that task um on the other hand she she does uh rely on boltman a lot who's a, you know a, a towering figure in the liberal tradition right yes. to say like oh yeah you know like whenever we're we're looking at the bible we're looking at the bible right there's this this process there there isn't an objective text that we can just you know like okay that's it right there, there's always this dance between the interpreter and the interpreted and that's going to look different depending on context so so i think those two things come together with uh, a deep reading of of buber and um also uh Oh, what 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 are they called? Not um, constructive um, people like Carol Gilligan and um, not Nell Noddings, um, Nancy Chero, um Object relations the psychology, right? So she's she's oh yes yes dealing with <laughs> she's, she's she's kind of getting a real sense of like wait a second we don't actually exist out of relationships and there's a sense right in which traditional theology and i think sometimes she creates some straw man to arguments to to advance her point in this in this case particularly with tillich i, I she has a she has a, a a deep analysis of tillich where she's like oh yeah tillich just leaves us with a very non-relational sense of of god and self and i i i think she's reading tillich in a way that is not quite doesn't quite do justice to what Tillich is saying, but helps her make her point, right? Um but there's this this these ideas of divine aseity, right? God doesn't suffer with us. Um mm -hmm. the ideas of divine uh perfection, right? So uh, um you know the idea that that um you know from Plato this idea that the 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 perfectly good right can can either can't change because then it's, it implies that it was less good or be, could become less good, right? So that right, means there's yeah. there's no there, there's a there's no movement, right? And there's no sense that it's in comparison to anything else or can be affected by anything else, right? So if mm -hmm. if God is perfectly good and can't become less good in any way, then nothing we do, right, adds or attracts to to the divine, right? And and Hayward is saying like. Actually, that's that's really damaging because it creates a sense of self that you kind of wall yourself off. Um, you don't allow yourself to integrate the sexual and the spiritual because you're trying to, you know, keep your boundaries real clear. Mm -hmm. um, and so she she notes all sorts of ways in which uh, that's what damaging. So she really pushes that insight to the most radical point, right? To say like, hey, wait a second, Buber is saying there's there's only relation, right? There's either that relationship of I, it, where you make something an object or I, thou, where you encounter the, the personhood of whatever it is you're relating with. It doesn't necessarily need to be a human being, but you know, the plant mm -hmm. I, I encounter 
uh, can have its own personhood that I approach with like, oh, wow, there's, you know, something going on inside that trunk and inside those leaves that I can't experience, but that, you know, is affecting me and that I can honor as some kind of otherness that actually affects me. Right. Um, yeah. So so there's there's kind of that layer of just like taking those insights and pushing it um, through to 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 the point of saying like hey actually it's not that divine being who's unaffected by the world and makes the world and the, doesn't really need the world but you know needs something to do so okay we're going to make a world and you know and then you know it goes wrong and then we're going to fix it uh but actually we're saying like no it's that that whole dance right it's it's uh you know like the question of how can you tell the dancer from the dance and maybe you can't tell the dancer from the dance right that's there's no there's where one starts and one stops is not so clear so that whole process of of you know i don't exist without others right i don't exist uh, without that you know right now i'm looking out the window and seeing the the tree right and i realize the tree is making oxygen for me to breathe and you know so that just that 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 very basic just like there's a plant and there's me right and we're breathing the same air and and creating uh, something together, right? That, uh, you know, like, unless I pay attention to it, um, I don't realize it's there. But whether or not I pay attention to the fact that that plant and I are both co-creating uh, an environment in which we both can live, right? That is, that's kind of the fundamental reality. Um, and then there's, of course, the, the the problem that relations can go very, very wrong, right? And so um, Hayward, unlike Buber, like, really makes this, um strong um, distinction between what she calls right relation and wrong relation. And so God is our sense of right relation, right? The, the relations that are mutually beneficial, the ones that, that are creative, uh, the ones that, um, um, you know, build us up, right? Th those are, those are the, the relationships in which God is present or that manifest God or that are God, right? So she doesn't want to say there's a God outside of the relationship. It's just like there's a field of relationality that works uh, and that when relationality works, that's what God is, right? Um, that also on the flip side is, you know, there's actual, it's actually a very tragic theology because there's so many ways in which relation can go wrong. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is, this is the piece where she kind of actually killed her career by uh, probing that question in a way that made people say, wait a second. Um, because uh, in the mid nineties, she published a book called when boundaries betray us. And that was an account of her going into therapy um, and developing a very intense relationship with her, you know, like emotional relationship with her therapist and wanting to to continue the friendship beyond uh, the therapeutic uh, encounter mm -hmm. and the therapist saying like, no, those aren't those aren't proper professional boundaries. And then kind of the disintegration of that process. And 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 she was like, wait a second, here's here's a case where I felt like there was some relation possible that that wasn't actualized right and and um mm -hmm. and a lot of people were like oh so you fell in love with your therapist and then you wrote a book about it and uh we don't really trust you anymore because that doesn't seem like someone who has healthy boundaries or doesn't seem like mm -hmm. someone uh who has a sense right so i think that book uh really did a lot of damage to the influence that she has had i mean i think she's still an influential uh writer but I think she would have had much more influence uh, today if she had a pr perhaps approached that book differently or just not written it. Um, 
and it's a book I've read and I, I understand uh, both the critiques and um, there's a way in which she's not as clear as she needs to be right in the book um, that what she's what she's actually exploring is the limits of relation right that, that she's like yeah. oh wait a second we can't just say oh god's everywhere because there's relation everywhere like yeah there's relation everywhere um but um those relationships can go sour i i think for me personally i would draw less of a clear line between right relationship and wrong relationship i think there's a lot more ambiguity between what's creative and what's destructive and i'm a little less um concerned with kind of excluding the destructive aspects from the divine as um like for Hayward right when something's destructive it's like oh that's where right relations stops and that's kind of the limit of my theology yeah and I think I would probably be more interested in saying like hey wait a second no every everything's temporary and everything has limits and everything's freaked out about those limits so of course there's going to be you know you're always going to be relating to something that's imperfect and uh, yeah, you know, and that's going to constitute you as imperfect, right? And so those imperfections, like, yeah, you wouldn't exist without, you know, like your parents, right? So that's a basic mm -hmm. relationship. You wouldn't exist without the plants that are making oxygen, right? So, so there's this there's this deep sense of embeddedness in a field of relations. Uh, but I'm 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 a little less um, worried about the fact that that both has a always has a positive and a, and a negative aspect to it and you know uh the fact that things go wrong is is you know a learning experience or just kind of a a, um, a sign that you know things aren't aren't always going to be perfect and you know the kind of i, I think there's kind of a utopian element in kind of positing this this divide between right relationship and wrong relationship that I like, yeah, you can actually develop this theology without lapsing into this hope for a utopian world of, of perfect relationship. Yeah. So and I, and I guess why I went there, I think I, I think, you know, uh, it was Hayward just was one of those texts that, you know, also in college that um, like really moved me very profoundly when I was, you know, when I encountered it, it really became very foundational for, for the way I thought about things. Um, it's not the only, only text that I, I like, and there's ways in which, you know, I, I kind of can say like, oh, like when, when I pray, maybe I'm doing something a little bit different than what she's, uh, you know, sometimes prayer does not feel like it fits into her model. Um, and so I haven't really figured out like how that goes together, but um, but in terms of what makes sense to me intellectually and what makes sense in terms of pulling my intellectual interests and my existential interests together, that's that's a, a very strong starting point. Okay, um, so um, I don't think the Trinity is mentioned um, at all in relation to like when you when you're discussing uh, Hayward, but when I think of like relationship and uh, interconnectedness mm -hmm. and God kind of mm -hmm. like my mind like naturally drifts towards the Trinity. So is that like a factor at all? I, I'm very liminally Christian. So um, I'm, I'm a Quaker and Quakerism is a place where that uh, can, that liminality is, is perfectly fine. 
Um, so there was a time when the Trinity was very, very important to me, and it just kind of stopped um, being so important to me. And in some ways, I, I really miss being a Trinitarian, um, but it just does. I just can't hold on to that idea as uh, as an idea that that really works for me at this point. Um, but I I, th I think that it's a very rich and and I I really envy people who are who are still Trinitarians in some ways. But and I think. Um, uh, she doesn't talk a whole lot about the Trinity, but I think she does uh, mention the Trinity as um, part of that that picture. And um, another place the Trinity comes up in relationship to this kind of way of thinking is uh, in Ruther's book called Woman Guides, where she has a whole chapter on sort of relationality within the divine, and she says the Trinity is one of the models that that um, lets us see this. So I, I think, yeah, absolutely Trinitarian thought is... Uh, extremely useful for relational theology. It's just not really where I've been at for, for quite some time. Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us, a show where everyone is welcome to God Talk. Find us on the web at seminary.show, on Twitter at seminaryshow, and or send us an email at seminary.show at gmail.com. Oh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to give us a rating. Thanks again and catch you next time.